a lot of the patients I talked with who turned to medical marijuana for help weren't turning to medical marijuana because of its benefits or the balance of risks and benefits, or because they thought it was a wonder drug, but because it gave them control over their illness. It let them manage their health in a way that was productive, and efficient, and effective, and comfortable for them. To show you what I mean, let me tell you about another patient. Robin was in her early 40s when I met her. She looked, though, like she was in her late 60s. She had suffered from rheumatoid arthritis for the last 20 years. Her hands were gnarled by arthritis. Her spine was crooked. She had to rely on a wheelchair to get around. She looked weak and frail, and I guess physically she probably was. But emotionally, cognitively, psychologically, she was among the toughest people I've ever met. And when I sat down next to her in the medical marijuana dispensary in Northern California to ask her about why she turned to medical marijuana, what it did for her, and how it helped her, she started out by telling me things that I had heard from many patients before. It helped with her anxiety. It helped with her pain. When her pain was better, she slept better. And I'd heard all that before. But then she said something that I'd never heard before, and that is that it gave her control over her life and over her health. She could use it when she wanted, in the way that she wanted, at the dose and frequency that worked for her. And if it didn't work for her, then she could make changes. Everything was up to her. The most important thing she said was she didn't need anybody else's permission. Not a clinic appointment, not a doctor's prescription, not a pharmacist's order. It was all up to her. She was in control. And if that seems like a little thing for somebody with chronic illness, it's not. Not at all. When we face a chronic serious illness, whether it's rheumatoid arthritis or lupus or cancer or diabetes or cirrhosis, we lose control. And note what I said: when, not if. All of us, at some point in our lives, will face a chronic serious illness that causes us to lose control. We'll see our function decline. Some of us will see our cognition decline. We'll be no longer able to care for ourselves, to do the things that we want to do. Our bodies will betray us, and in that process, we'll lose control. And that's scary—not just scary. That's frightening. It's terrifying. When I talk to my patients, my palliative care patients, many of whom are facing illnesses that will end their lives, they have a lot to be frightened of: pain, nausea, vomiting, constipation, fatigue, their impending mortality. But what scares them more than anything else is this possibility that at some point. Tomorrow or a month from now, they're going to lose control of their health, of their lives, of their healthcare, and they're going to become dependent on others, and that's terrifying. So it's no wonder, really, that patients like Robin, who I just told you about, who I met in that clinic, turned to medical marijuana to try to claw back some semblance of control. How do they do it, though? How did these medical marijuana dispensaries, like the one where I met Robin, how do they give patients like Robin back the sort of control that they need, and how do they do it in a way that mainstream medical hospitals and clinics, at least for Robin, weren't able to? What's their secret? So I decided to find out. I went to a CD clinic in Venice Beach, in California, and got a recommendation that would allow me to be a medical marijuana patient. I got a letter of recommendation that would let me buy 
medical marijuana. I got that recommendation illegally because I'm not a resident of California. I should note that. I should also note, for the record, that I never used that letter of recommendation to make a purchase. And to all of you DEA agents out there, <laughs> love the work that you're doing. Keep it up. <laughs> Even though it didn't let me make a purchase, though. That letter was priceless because it let me be a patient. It let me experience what patients like Robin experience when they go to a medical marijuana dispensary. And what I experienced, what they experience every day—hundreds of thousands of people like Robin—was really amazing. I walked into the clinic, and from the moment that I entered many of these clinics and dispensaries, I felt like that dispensary, that clinic, was there for me. There were questions at the outset about who I am, what kind of work I do, what my goals are in looking for a medical marijuana prescription or、uh, a product, what my goals are, what my preferences are, what my hopes are. How do I think? How do I hope this might help me? What am I afraid of? These are the sorts of questions that patients like Robin get asked all the time. These are the sorts of questions that make me confident. That the person I'm talking with really has my best interests at heart and wants to get to know me. The second thing I learned in those clinics is the availability of education—education education from the folks behind the counter, but also education from folks in the waiting room. People I met were more than happy, as I was sitting next to them, people like Robin, to tell me about who they are, why they use medical marijuana, what helps them, how it helps them, and to give me advice and suggestions. Those waiting rooms really are a hive of interaction, advice, and support. And third, the folks behind the counter. I was amazed at how willing those people were to spend sometimes an hour or more talking me through the nuances of this strain versus that strain, smoking versus vaporizing, edibles versus tinctures. All remember without me making any purchase whatsoever. Think about the last time you went to any hospital or clinic, and the last time anybody spent an hour explaining those sorts of things to you. The fact that patients like Robin are going to these clinics, are going to these dispensaries, and getting that sort of personalized attention and education and service really should be a wake-up call to the healthcare system. People like Robin are turning away from mainstream medicine, turning to medical marijuana dispensaries because those dispensaries are giving them what they need. If that's a wake-up call to the medical establishment, it's a wake-up call that many of my colleagues are either not hearing or not wanting to hear. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the I Am Cannabis Sativa podcast. I'm your host, Cannabis Sativa. If you're currently a medical marijuana patient and want to tell your story and be featured on the podcast, feel free to email me at iamcannabisativa@gmail.com. Feel free to hit me up on Instagram at I am Cannabis Sativa. Feel free to hit hit up our official Twitter account at IC Sativa Podcast. You can find and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Anchor FM, Stitcher, and the Google Play Music Store. Please rate and review us on iTunes, as rating and reviewing us will bump up the pod on their algorithm and put this podcast in front of even more eyeballs. If you like what we are doing, please become a patron and support us. We plan on doing big things with our humble little projects, such as going to trade shows, 
visiting other MMJ or recreational states, and doing on-field work. Supporting us helps keep the lights on, pay rent, pay for hosting and equipment, and travel. You can do that by going to https colon slash slash anchor dot fm slash I am Cannabis Sativa podcast slash support. Again, that's www.anchor.fm slash I am Cannabis Sativa podcast slash support. So as you all know, I went to the uh, fifth uh, annual um, New England Cannabis Convention um and um I, I I attended a lot of uh very informative and very useful lectures while I was there. Um as um so with the for the first clip that I opened the episode with, that was by um by that was by um a doctor that gave a TED talk a couple years ago, Dr. David Kasserit, and he was talking about why people turn to medical marijuana. And when I first became a patient two years ago, that was like one of the first like lectures I saw, you know, on like what doctors thought about medical marijuana and why patients turned to it. And he really nails it. Like when when you go to doctors and you have a chronic condition that you've gone to many doctors f- to help treat and you've tried half a dozen to a dozen medications you know you start and and nothing helps your symptoms and you're you're suffering you you lose control you know and it's one of the it's one of the crabbiest feelings you can ever feel when you're sick and you don't have any control of 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 treating that sickness and you you lost all control of treating your symptoms and you lost all control of 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 your body because your body is betraying you you know, I, I went through that for four years of my life and there were a very hard four years. It really was, you know, trying everything you can going to going to CVS, you know, trying five or six different sleep aids in, in CVS, then going to Walmart and then rinse and repeating and then going to Target and rinse and repeating, trying Ambien again that the doctor prescribes. Oh, let's try Trazodone. Oh, let's try Seroquel. Oh, let's up to dose of Seroquel. Oh, that didn't work. Let's try 5 milligrams of Lexapro. Oh, let's try 10. Let's put you in Metazapine. Let's put you in Gabapentin. You know, it just keeps going on and on with nothing helping until marijuana was able to help me. And what I like about dispensaries and what I like about being a medical marijuana patient, like, like, like the doc, like the Dr. David Kasserit was saying is that I have control. If, if I go to a medical marijuana dispensary and I get a strain that didn't really help me the next day, I can go to another dispensary and, and talk to that bud tender and be like, Hey, that didn't work. Which, which other ones might be better. I don't have to, I don't have to take a, a paid time off day to do that. I don't have to book an appointment and wait for my doctor for another two, three, four weeks. You know, I don't have to, I don't have to beat rush hour traffic, take a pay time off day, go to, go to the doctor during the middle of the day during nine to five hours and then have to fight traffic and then go back to work or, 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 or be otherwise inconvenienced. 
or go to a pharmacy and have to get a prior authorization or whatever. And, and you know, I've, I've gone to pharmacies and filled prescriptions where, oh, where the insurance company would only cover 10 of the pills, but then they wouldn't cover the other 20. Like, the, I've, I've had situations like that happen when I went the the legal routes, the legal approved um, or conventional routes. I've had that happen. But it, it's really refreshing when you have doctors that get it. It really is. And um, so one of the lectures that I attended um, was by... Um, was by a doctor and a um, dispensary owner in, in, in my legal grass at Chusis. And um, the name of the talk um, was titled, just give me one moment to call it up. Uh, the name of the talk was uh, titled, one moment, Cannabis and Cancer Relief. And the, uh, the speaker was Dr. Karen Mooncasey who owns the uh, dispensary Garden Remedies and her talk was very very informative um, she talks about a lot of things in the talk that I'm going to in the lecture that she gave um, that I'm going to enclose um, she talks about you know sexism in the cannabis industry she talks about her journey overcoming breast cancer um, she talks about um, how doctors are not really taught about the endocannabinoid system so a lot, a lot of the times, you know, the the patients know more than the doctors because they were never taught it in medical school, and because of it being illegal, you know, they're not really incentivized to learn about it, you know. And um, she she sort of promised herself if she lived through her her breast cancer that, you know, that she would dedicate her life to to helping to to make cannabis legal and she advocating for for its medical use and, and whatnot and you know it's really refreshing when a doctor knows about the endocannabinoid system and advocates for patients and it's it's really great that you know we have doctors that that are advocates for marijuana reform and that get sort of the shortcomings of traditional pharmaceuticals and traditional treatment like like i said earlier you know Another thing that sucks about, like, traditional pharmaceutical treatment is that, like, a lot of primary care physicians are only open 9 to 5, you know, and they're not open weekends. Or or many times they're, they're you know, they're, they're booked and busy people. So if you have an issue, you have to suffer with that issue for three, four weeks until they have another appointment availability, you know. And when you try a strain that doesn't work at a, at, at a dispensary... You can just go that very day, like she said, or you can you you can go back that very day. You can go to a different one that day. You can go to another one the next day, you know. And typically, they're open till seven or eight o'clock if there are enough in your area, you know, and there's enough of them with with decent hours. So you can usually go after work, you know, or you can and you can always go during the weekend, you know, and that's an, another added perk. But, um, but, but yeah, I mean, her, what, she, what she has to say is very informative and towards, and, 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 um, I sort of make an appearance later in the question and a answer session of the, uh, 
discussion. So um, without further ado, here's her, uh, here's Dr. Moon Casey's uh, talk about cancer and cannabis. I'm excited right now to introduce Dr. Karen Moon Casey. She's an MD. She earned her degree from the University of Michigan Medical School. And prior to that, she worked as a board-certified anesthesiologist, pain management specialist, and assistant professor at UCLA and USC Medical Centers in Los Angeles. Um, she has recently recovered from her battle with cancer. And so who better to talk to us about that? And I'm sure each and every one of us knows somebody suffering from cancer. She is the founder and president and CEO of Garden Remedies. So with no further ado, Dr. Karen Munkesey. Thank you, Terry, and thank you, everyone in the audience, for coming here to hear this talk. Um, I was a nerd professor of medicine, and, and um, I wasn't taught anything about medical marijuana in my medical school or internship or residency or fellowship. That might seem surprising to you, but currently, today, about 91% of medical schools don't teach anything about the benefits of medical marijuana. And they might say, so how is that possible? And the reason for it is that if someone's not taught about the benefits, when they become a professor, how are they going to teach about it unless they actually do the research and learn about its medical benefits? So when I was diagnosed with advanced breast cancer, my oncologist spent about 90 minutes with me the first time I went in to see her. And when I left that hour and a half session, the only thing that I can remember is that she told me I had cancer. And I think that's pretty typical. So if any of you um, have the possibility of being diagnosed with cancer, or if a loved one of yours um, is, is undergoing that diagnosis or treatment, when you're a cancer patient, it's so stressful, it's just really hard to even hear anything that you're told. So what I recommend to cancer patients is that they bring someone with them when they go visit their doctor and have that person take notes for them. Um, my husband took notes for me so I could actually <laughs> read what the oncologist had told me. Um, but otherwise, I wouldn't have, that would have been a waste of 90 minutes. And, um, and if your oncologist is knowledgeable about medical marijuana, it can be a lot of helpful information. So my oncologist, I was at Sloan Kettering, and the reason I had to be treated at Sloan Kettering is because I was so sick, I had to have my in-laws, my parents were deceased, I had my in-laws take care of me, they lived in New Jersey, and Sloan Kettering was the nearest place for me to get treatment. So most physicians don't know anything about medical marijuana, and as shocking as that sounds, with Today, about 91% of all medical schools not teaching anything about the benefits of medical marijuana, it starts to make sense, right? And I didn't really feel like I had a lot of knowledge about it until I read about 400 journal articles. And I was shocked to find out all the literature that's out there about the benefits of medical marijuana. It exists, it's published, it's um, done by great researchers, it's published in excellent journals. It's just it's not taught to medical professionals. So how do you know that this can benefit a patient if you've never learned that it can benefit a patient, right? So 
I had really severe nausea when I was undergoing cancer treatment. Um, they, I had a, was diagnosed with an advanced form of breast cancer, really fast growing. And when you're younger and you have breast cancer, it seems counterintuitive, but typically you're more likely to die than if you're older and you're diagnosed with breast cancer. It was really aggressive, and so they had to give me really aggressive chemotherapy. And I was extraordinarily nauseated for the entire four months of my treatment. I'm a physician, and I know all the pharmacologic drugs for treating nausea, all the combinations, all the maximal doses, and nothing worked. Um, and I was always kind of the good girl nerd, didn't use marijuana, you know, had always been told it was a bad thing. And then I had some conservative friends and, and doctors tell me that this would help. Uh, I was living with my elderly in-laws, I had no idea where to get it, and so I didn't use it when I was undergoing treatment. After I was cured of cancer, it, it really haunted me. I think even today I still have a bit of PTSD about all the suffering that I had to undergo. And I thought it was absolutely ridiculous that you had to choose between breaking the law or suffering the way that I suffered. So thinking about that and, and actually having prayed and said to God that if, if I get cured, I'm going to work to change the situation. Uh, in 2011, um, I started trying to change the, the, the laws in Massachusetts. And um, in June 2011, I testified in front of the Public Health Committee of the state legislature. And they it's been stuck in committee for 10 years at that point, uh, legalization of marijuana. And as you know, legislators don't typically enjoy taking on things that they consider controversial. But fortunately, there was a right-hand person of this billionaire, Peter Lewis. Her name's Jen Frucci. She was in the audience, and she told Peter, you should fund these people. They, you know, they know what they're talking about, and they can help get this legalized in Massachusetts. So Peter spent millions of dollars. We built out the team. The day I testified, it was just Matt Allen and I. Um, he works with um, ACLU now. We were the only two people that were really working on this full time, and he had to wait, wait tables on the side because there wasn't any money for this. I was doing it for free, and, um, and I did it for free for years because I really thought that this was something that needed to be legally available for people. So we helped get it on the ballot in November 2012, and just to educate myself further, I spent a lot of time in Colorado and in California and visited the dispensaries there, and I was kind of shocked because I think it's probably better now, but the quality of the products and the education that people were given was, I thought that I could create a company that could do a lot better than that. I went to one of the biggest, most famous dispensaries in California, and I, I asked the um, person who was waiting on me, so tell me about your education, because they're supposed to be very educational. Um, she said, Ed education, they put me in front of a cash register and said to start selling that thing. So I was kind of shocked. And I knew that we could do better than that. And so when people come to Garden Remedies, even if you're there for an hour and a half, and, and you know, even if you don't buy anything at the end of that time, that's okay, because we want to educate people. And that's part of our mission, and, um, and we want to help people. I, I got into medicine to help people, and so that's what we do at Garden Remedies. And um, we also wanted to create best-in-class products for everything that we make so that patients have you know, 
best products possible and all the products possible that could be helpful to them. So we currently have two medical dispensaries. Uh, we have one in Newton and one in Melrose. And um, if any of you are patients, I, we'd love to have you come there and we'll promise we'll take good care of you. Um, we have a number of, of uh, our employees who are cancer survivors. And when you meet our people, you'll see we're pretty passionate about what we do and, and how we can help people. So, we are one of two woman-led companies in the state, and um, that's kind of a tragedy, I think, and it's really difficult for companies that are women-led or minority-led to get financing. It takes a heck of a lot of money to do this, and um, I know that the CCC is working on addressing that, but it is not easy to do this business in this state. It, cost us millions of dollars. And um, you know, we, we have a program called the Catalyst Program, and we're trying to help people who are struggling with um, getting into this industry. Um, there's a lot of good people out there who it's going to be really tough to get into this industry because it is so expensive. Um, I actually brought my husband to a lot of my investor pitches. You know, he's a middle-aged white guy. and. Middle-aged white guys are the ones who are getting the checks, and so when I'd go by myself, it was like I might have swallowed not even shown up. But when I brought my husband, checks were written, and, and I think that's absurd. But there's a lot of um, there's a lot of truth to the, the prejudice out there and the struggles that women and, and minorities have to get into this industry. I think it's very wrong. One of my passions, one of the reasons I got into this, I'm not a minority, but I am a woman, and like to show as many people as possible that women can be CEOs <laughs> and it's just I, I'm just really shocked I really feel like I live in 1950 for a lot of these meetings I go to because it's just you know I, I, I bring the middle-aged white guy with me so I'm hoping that that changes um, so cannabis I believe and the literature supports this is the absolute best medication for patients undergoing cancer treatment. Um, you have to tell your oncologist that you're, if you're a cancer patient that you're using it. Um, and if they're not educated in cannabis, they either have to get educated or you need to find a new oncologist. So the physicians that work for partners in healthcare, it's about two thirds of the physicians in the state. Um, the administrators there are worried that they'll lose federal funding if their doctors are, um, are allowed to recommend cannabis, but there's a lot of physicians that work for the major facilities in, in Massachusetts that will say, I'm not supposed to say this, but I think cannabis could help you with your, your um, medical symptoms. And you really want to go to a, an oncologist who has done their homework and understands how beneficial this can be and will support you. And when you come to us, we'll help you get the right products or your, your suffering. So it's it's so helpful in so many different ways for cancer treatment. Um, I've got board certification in pain management as well as anesthesiology. And the medications that we have for pain, especially chronic pain, don't work very well. And we prescribe a lot of narcotics, not because they work well for chronic pain, because they don't, and they're very addicting and they're dangerous. It's just that 
until we had cannabis, we didn't really have anything that worked well. Cannabis probably, for most patients, works better than anything else for neuropathic pain and lots of other types of chronic pain. And it's safe. You, know, you can't kill yourself with cannabis, even if you try. It's pretty easy to kill yourself with narcotics and with a lot of these other medications. So, and, and with cannabis, you can dose to effect, right? So how many other medications do, are there out there where you can actually dose to effect? You can't dose to effect with Oxycontin, because you, know, you, you, you have run the risk of giving yourself a fatal overdose. And that's true for a lot of other medications, but this medication you can dose to effect. So I'm first going to tell you of all the different um, problems that it can help with, and then I'll explain how we help patients who are having problems. So it can help with nausea and appetite. It can help with depression, anxiety. It can help with insomnia. Um, there's some preliminary research that shows that it can actually help treat cancer. No one is going to, no MD is going to tell you now to stop your chemotherapy or radiation or don't get surgery uh, because cannabis will cure you. It might, but you know, it's kind of a tragedy that we don't have the um, research to, to prove that that's the case at this point. And part of the reason is right now, researchers, the only place they can legitimately get marijuana is from the, this horrible farm at the University of Mississippi and they don't have good quality marijuana, and it's really, really difficult to go through all the, and jump over all the hurdles that you have to jump over to do research. So you, one of the hurdles you have to jump over is you have to get approval from the National Institute on Drug Abuse to do your study. And it's in their mission statement that they are there to study the negative effects of marijuana and not, okay, research that could actually show benefit of marijuana. And a friend of mine who's a researcher, it was explained to him by the head of NIDA at the time, Donald, we're the National Institute on Drug Abuse, not for drug abuse, and we, we can't um, approve your study because it might show benefits of medical marijuana. So that's how bad it is now, and physicians are working around that. So Dr. Abrams, that was Dr. Donald Abrams, who was told this, he went back and he then asked NIDA to do a study on whether medical marijuana um, decreased the blood levels of AIDS medications, and then all on the side, he was going to see if it helped with neuropathic pain or not. But he, he told them that the main reason he was doing the study was to see if it affected the blood levels of HIV medications. Turns out, doesn't affect the blood levels of HIV medications. Um, the study was approved to be done, but it does help with neuropathic. But that was the gymnastics that he had to go through to get his study approved. It's tragic, and um, we're hoping that it changes soon, but that's the way things are currently. So let me ex tell you about a patient that we had. Um, elderly woman with cancer. Her cancer was terminal, and never had used cannabis, thought it was horrible, the evil weed. That's what she'd been told, right? That's what a lot of us, including me, had been told. Um, her son convinced her to come to us uh, for treatment. And when she came to us, she could barely get off the couch. She was using narcotics for her pain management. She was very sleepy. She was nauseated from the narcotics. She just, she was very constipated. 
and um, having trouble with all the, the problems that typically occur with severe cancer. So she she had, so we helped her and, and explained to her what would work best for her. So when someone's severely nauseated, you don't want to give them a pill or anything they have to swallow because it could be vomited right back up again. And when you're really suffering, you want immediate relief from your symptoms. So we told her to use a vape pen and to titrate to effect with that. Um, one of the reasons there's over a million patients that use medical marijuana and are just have fed up with pharmaceuticals is because medical marijuana is, is worked differently and, and we can use it differently than we can use pharmaceuticals, right? So typically when someone comes to a physician like me and they're having medical problems, we're booked to see people once every 15 minutes. So that's not typically long enough for someone with, who, who has really complicated medical problems. So that's a problem. And then also most physicians don't know about all the different types of modes of ingestion of medical marijuana. We have over 50 products. We're very proud of the products that we've created. Um, but people need help in figuring out what's gonna work best for them, and we give that help. So this elderly woman came to us. We said, so why are you here? And she told us about all of her problems. She had nausea, she was depressed, she was anxious, she couldn't sleep. And so, and she was, she was sleeping. She couldn't really, she wasn't really awake and with it, but she couldn't sleep. So, so what we told her um, that would help her was to use a vape pen, uh, titrate that to effect. But inhaled forms typically only last three or four hours, and she wasn't sleeping. So we said titrate to effect, get it to the point where your symptoms are alleviated, and then take an edible. And you know, traditional doctors make fun of me for, for making gummies and chocolates and caramels and honey and sugar and all the things that we make. And I said, look, first of all, we're gonna make things that taste good because as a cancer patient, not much tastes good. And, and we're gonna do that. And edibles can last seven or eight hours, where the inhaled forms only last three or four hours. So we've got people get their symptoms under control to the point where they can ingest an edible and then they take an edible, and this, this elderly woman, for the first time in many months, was able to have her symptoms under control, sleep through the night, and, and her suffering was greatly alleviated. So we got her from non-functional, on the couch, miserable. She was back out shopping at Whole Foods. She was visiting her friends. We gave her her life back. And for the next three or four months, basically until the, the day or two before she died, she had an excellent quality of life, and, and she was able to say her goodbyes to her friends and her family, and it was pretty remarkable. And so her son came and talked to our staff at our cultivation and processing facility. People that work for us at the dispensary, they see every day how we help people, but the people who do cultivation and processing, they don't get to see that, and so once a month we bring someone in and have them explain to the staff in their cultivation and processing facility how we help people. So when you go to a physician, you get your maybe 15 minutes of time with the physician, and then they write a prescription. If it doesn't work, typically you're suffering for the next two weeks to four weeks until you can get another appointment to see them. And I, always, I was always asking myself, so why, are, why is there over a million people that are coming to 
medical dispensaries versus having the physician help them. And it's for the, these reasons. When you see a physician, if it doesn't work, you've got two to four weeks of suffering before you see the physician again. When you come to us, we'll spend whatever time it takes figuring out what will work best for you. And in most cases, we help you and we alleviate your symptoms. In the, the few cases that we don't, you can come back at any time. You can come back later on that day if you want. You can come back the next day. And we'll work with you to find something that will really help you. And so since you can, you'll get pretty much immediate alleviation of your suffering, and this is something you can titrate to a fact, right? So people get control of their symptoms. It's very different than, than the pharmaceutical med medications where the physician's making the best guess, like, I think this is the dose. They can only take it every three to four hours because if they take it more often, it could be fatal or they could have severe side effects. This is something where you really you gain control of, of your life and, and of your suffering. Right? So that's how it's different. And it's also different because the side effects are pretty uncommon unless you're really overdosed with marijuana. And if you do, you might be paranoid, you might hallucinate. But in that case, you tell we just tell people, go to sleep. When you wake up, you feel great. Versus if you overdose on prescription medications, you might go to sleep and never wake up. So it's different. It's rare that our patients have these side effects because we teach them how to use it properly. But that's about the worst that can happen if you really, really overdose. So it's different. It's, this is a whole different way of, of treating someone's symptoms. And, and it's better for a lot of people. Um, our products are, we have great vape pens, flour, we do pre-rolls for people who don't want to bother doing that themselves. We put a filter on it, so it's a filtered product. Um, we have great edibles, topicals. There's a lot of people that just want relief of, say, bursitis, and so they'll put a topical on. Um, some people like the euphoria that you get from THC, some people don't. And we have products that'll give you that euphoria, and we have products that don't give that to you. So you have options. Um, so, we'd really like to see, and if, if you're healthy enough to advocate, we'd really like to have people advocate for federal legality of this product. It's still a stigma. And there's still a lot of physicians that won't recommend it because it's federally illegal. It's not federally illegal because it's unsafe or it's a bad product or it doesn't work. It's federally illegal for political reasons. And that's why it was made federally illegal. In 1937, the American Medical Association begged the federal government to not make this federally illegal. They said, we believe it has medical benefits. But it's going to be difficult to do research and prove these medical benefits if you make it illegal. Um, it was made illegal until 1937. It was actually prescribed a lot as a medicine. And you'll see it in, in old bottles, old tinctures, and, and different products. Um, in China, it's been used in traditional Chinese medicine for thousands of years. Uh, there's about 10,000 different substances that can be used in traditional Chinese medicine that, and that are considered to have some value. 
the top 50 are things that are used all the time, and um, marijuana is one of the top 50 products that is considered to be beneficial in traditional Chinese medicine. So we know this works. We know that this helps people. We see this every day, and, and we see it not only helping cancer patients in miraculous ways, enough no pharmaceuticals help them. We've gotten patients off of products. We've got patients with multiple sclerosis out of wheelchairs. I mean, this, this is really a substance that works in amazing ways, unlike anything else out there. And it's because we have an endocannabinoid system. So we have receptors for cannabinoids in our body. Um, this is not something where we don't know the science. We know the science of this. It's been figured out. You have endocannabinoid receptors throughout your body. And as we know, marijuana gets into the brain pretty easily and, and has its effects, right? So a lot of pharmaceutical medications don't get into the brain very easily. And because of that, they don't work very well. But we know that this substance um, crosses the blood-brain barrier, which is the barrier that keeps medications out of the brain very easily. We know that this works, and, and it works well, and um, I'm kind of dismayed by the fact that there's still a lot of medical professionals out there that don't know this, but um, you know, one of the reasons I'm here is to try and spread the word, word about this amazing medication, and it's so helpful for so many different forms of suffering, and it may even help cure cancer. Um, for that, we need more research. There's not going to be any physicians who are going to prescribe this as a cure for cancer until there's more research done. I did go to a lecture at Harvard. And it surprised me. They had a um, patient who they presented his medical history. And it was a man with um, metastatic prostate cancer spread throughout his body. And it was shown on MRI that it was throughout his body. And they tried every um, pharmaceutical medication, you know, every chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, nothing had worked. And so they basically sent him all to die. Um, the man used Rick Simpson oil and came back to his physician months later. The cancer was gone. And they said, what did you do? How is this possible? And they, they put up the MRI that showed his cancer was gone. It actually had been cured. But they also said, look, we can't recommend Rick Simpson oil for cancer because we need more research to prove that it could be helpful. Maybe it's not helpful for all, for all types of cancer. Maybe it helps rarely, but we're not going to recommend this until we have more research. We've seen other people whose cancer have been cured by Rick Simpson oil, but again, you know, we need more research to be done on this. So I got into this to provide best products to patients and to educate patients and to get them the best products possible. We feel that we've achieved that and um, we have a dispensary Newton that does medical. We have a dispensary in Melrose that does medical. We're going to be opening a third one in Marlboro. Um, that's the maximum number of dispensaries that we can have in the state. Um, but they're located you know, in different areas of the greater Boston area. and. Um, we're really proud of what we've done and what we've created. Um, this is not an easy industry to get into at all. Um, there's, you know, we do try to help people if we can. Um, we do help lots of patients 
So, one of the reasons that I speak on this is because I don't look like a stoner, which is what a lot of people say. Oh, this just you know hippies that do this. This is this is BS. People just want to get high. And frankly, there's a lot of hippies that have helped a lot of people, and I don't think that anyone who is in this industry should be insulted or criticized in any way. You have to be brave and you have to be pretty smart to get into this. It is not easy. So I think that we need to all work together and respect each other and collaborate and help move this forward. This is a medicine that really, really helps a lot of people with a lot of very serious problems. And we're making this, we're moving this forward I do think that at some point it will be federally legal, but you know we need the help of everyone in the audience and more people to be speaking about this, to be talking. If, if you've used it and it's helped you, or you have a loved one that it's helped, you've got to tell people about that. People listen to, to the people that they trust when they tell them about how this has helped them or someone around them. So please spread the word and um, we're making history. We're really changing the world because it's just gone from something that, you know, even in 2011 in Massachusetts, people would roll their eyes when I would talk about this. They don't roll their eyes anymore, but they still need to be educated and we can all help with that. So I'd like to um, answer any questions that any of you have and let's move this forward. Yes, we do. Um, we sometimes run out of it, but we do, and we try to give it to people at a discount because you you might need a lot of it. And typically, cancer patients are not working if they're really sick, right? And they might be struggling financially. So for us, it's more of a thing that we do to help people. We don't necessarily make any money on it, but we do want to make it uh, available for as many people as possible. Do you have a So we are not allowed to give medical advice, and if we do, we will probably lose our license. So what we have to say is patients have reported that this works. For this, we can't say use this um, as, as a medicine, we know this works. We, I can't be these patients' physician. Um, and in fact, if you're a physician, um, writing recommendations for medical marijuana, you can't have a license, a dispenser license. It's you have to choose one or the other, and I've chosen to um, hopefully make the best products on the market and, and help patients. There are physicians out there who will write recommendations for medical um, marijuana, Canadox. Um, it's not difficult. If you can be helped by it, they'll almost certainly write you a recommendation. There are physicians that are comfortable doing it. Just Google online and you will find someone. Yeah, and I wish that I could tell you that there was one that's been proven to, you know, in a medical journal that is works. Typically, we tell people that um, what's been most helpful to patients is you 
um, start with a small amount because it can be very, very um, strong and, and, and can produce side effects. So you start with the smallest amount you can tolerate and as quickly as you can, you ramp up to as, as much as you can tolerate. Um, we don't want someone trying it and they have such bad side effects from the paranoia, anxiety, hallucinations that they stop using it. So typically you'd start with a small amount and ramp up as, as quickly as you can. We also tell people that you, please tell your oncologist that you're using this. Um, and, and, and also, if you're using it to, to help with nausea or anxiety or depression or insomnia or, or a lack of appetite or any of the pain or any of the other problems that cancer patients typically have, tell your doctor that this works when none of the prescription drugs work because that's a way for them to learn about the medical benefits of this. And if they hear that over and over again from their patients, that this is the only thing that helps, at some point they have to start listening. Thank you. Any other questions? So something that has been sort of like disturbing me and that's been like a troubling trend hasn't really been the trend in Massachusetts, but um, what I've been I've been reading in like a lot of states, like lawmakers that are trying to legalize marijuana, they're doing like I, I'm I'm also a medical marijuana patient as well, and I've been noticing a lot of like states are trying to put like potency limits on edibles. Oh. Um, a lot of states are trying to do some, they're trying to do like potency limits on edibles. And if you're like a medical marijuana patient and you use edibles, this can be very troubling and this can get very expensive very quickly. So what way, how do we convince lawmakers that, you know, although they're trying to do the right thing, they might be misguided in doing it? So in Massachusetts, there's no limit on, on edibles for medical patients. You can make an edible at any number of milligrams you want as a, as a um, dispenser. You can sell that. For um, adult use, there is a limit. And there's a reason for that. It's because um, people who may have used marijuana in the past typically have not used edibles. And um, there are people who've overdosed on it. And there are some states that have seriously considered legislation to ban edibles and there's some states that have banned edibles they still don't allow them and the reason is because anecdotal studies like there's this New York Times reporter Marine Dowd who went to Colorado ate, ate a candy bar that had 16 doses um, I think it was a five milligrams times 16 in the candy bar she liked the candy bar tasted good she ate the whole thing and she said that she thought she wrote in her her um, article that was published in the New York Times that she thought she had died and people had forgotten to tell her. So, <laughs> so that's you know that's what can happen if you um, don't have some sort of controls on edibles. So so what we're going to do for adult use edibles, and we're going to sell adult use. I don't think there's anything wrong with adult-used marijuana. I think that that's ridiculous, that that's illegal. And we also have patients that say, I'm buying it on the street because I'm not gonna tell the government that I use marijuana, it was my job. So, so what, the way we're going to, to um, sell our adult-use edibles 
is it's going to be single dose, right? Each piece is going to be five milligrams, 20, 20 pieces. That's your choice, right? But it's going to be, you're going to have to have more than one piece. And we're going to tell people if, who've not used edibles before, when you ingest it, it might be an hour or two before you feel anything. And this, you know, this is part of our mission. Please don't make another one until you've waited two hours to see if it's doing anything for you or not, because don't do a marine down where you know she waited 15 minutes, didn't feel anything, ate the whole candy bar, and thought she saw God. <laughs> so, so, you know, you'll be able to buy as much as you want from us, but it's gonna, you're gonna have to take more than one piece to get more than five milligrams. You wanna have 100 milligrams, 1,000 milligrams, you'll be able to do that as an adult use customer, but you're gonna to have to consciously take one piece, take another piece, take another piece, um, versus for medical patients, um, you'll be able to have one piece that'll have more than five milligrams in it. But again, it's, it's educating people. And I don't think Maureen Dowd was, was told how to use an edible. We tell people, you've gotta wait at least an hour Better to wait two hours if you've not had edibles before because they can be very strong, but they catch up to you, right? You don't think that you're feeling anything, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, I took too much. This is not, you know. And edibles can work really well for people, but here's what can happen. If the first time you use them, you have a bad experience, you're probably never going to use them again, right? Because you're going to think back to that and say, oh my God, I can't go through that again. And so now you've lost a modality of ingestion that might have been great for you, but you had a bad experience until you're not going back there. Yeah. Since you're obviously a minority in the medical profession. Yeah, when I was talking about the medical benefits in 2011 and in 2012, there's over 20,000 doctors in Massachusetts. I was the only one that we could find that would speak in favor of it. No other doctor would, would do that. It was crazy. So what's the argument? What's the argument? The argument, and it's not true, but they just don't know. It's not that doctors are malicious or they don't want people to get better. It's just they don't know that there's research out there that proves the medical benefits. They haven't been taught. Think about it. Right now, today, 91% of medical schools don't teach on the benefits of medical marijuana. My daughter went to an Ivy League medical school a couple of years ago, Columbia. Columbia told her, her lecturer said, there's no medical benefits to marijuana. I was shocked. It's, that was like two or three years ago. So they're still teaching physicians, all physicians who are out in practice, that's what they've been told for the most part. And even today, that's what they're still being taught. It's Completely unacceptable. I'm a caregiver for a medical patient in New Jersey that's suffering with cancer right now. Are there certain strains that you've had more feedback that work better for appetite? That's what we're working on right now. So it's, it can be not medical or marijuana, it's not a one size fits all. It's not that if one strain helps one patient, it's going to help every patient. And so doctors think, oh, well, that means it's not a very good medicine. But what they don't understand, and they need to understand, is that we can only medications for medications. Wrong. The more medications that are out there to treat something, that tells you that none of them work very well, typically, or that there's not one that helps everybody. And that's true for marijuana, too. 
So yes, are there some strains that typically are, are more likely to help someone with a certain symptom? Yes. Is there a guarantee? No, but that's true for prescription medications too, right? There's not one medication that helps with nausea. And, and believe me, I tried all the prescription medications for nausea and none of them were very helpful. So you, the way to help this patient is to go with something that we know has helped other patients. And if it doesn't help the patient, you'll know right away, especially if it's an inhaled form. You'll know within minutes whether it's helpful or not. If it's not, then you can wait till that wears off, a couple of hours, and try something else. That's one of the beauties of, of medical marijuana. If something doesn't work, you have so many other options. And you'll almost certainly find something that does work. Yes. I you can't recommend. I, right, right. There, there are some that will typically work better than others. and um, So there's there's two companies. There's one called Strain Print and one called Sale. And they're collecting data on what typically works best for um, patients. And you can contact them. And they, they will tell you uh, what their patients have reported works best. I, I would say that that's probably the best source. We're not in New Jersey, I can't tell you what's available there, but hopefully sale or strain print are available there. And um, I know that they've collected, over, strain print for instance, has collected over a million patient experiences. So it's, you know, it's not done in a, um, the typical way research is done, which is double-blinded, um, prospective, placebo-controlled. But if you've got a million different patient experiences, there's a very good chance that there's information that's available that will be helpful. Can you yes. Say those again? Yeah, those two okay. So one is called Sale S A I L, and I think that Canadocs are using that. I don't have any not making money off this. I'm not invested, but I think Canadocs is um, using Sale to help collect patient data. Uh, strain print is another one that is collecting data. I don't think that they're um, in Massachusetts yet. I know they're big in Florida, um, but I think sale is pretty big in Massachusetts and working hard to collect data for patients. Straight, straight, S-T-R-A-I-M print um, is one, and then sale is the one I think that has been uh, collecting a lot of data, working with Canadocs in Massachusetts. Yeah. So you mentioned that you were surprised at other dispensaries' lack of training their staff, and I'm wondering how you addressed that in your So we have extensive training for our, our um, we call them patient care advocates, and then once they've done the training, we will have someone that will kind of chaperone them and as they um, go out on the floor and, and help patients. and. Um, you can only teach so much, you know, in lectures. Then, then you have to give people the opportunity to go out there and and um, be trained on the floor, you know, with with people who've been doing this for a while. Um, and our our patient care advocates, I can say that they they really care about people. Nobody's getting rich being a patient care advocate. They're there. They're making a living, but. They're there because they, they want to help people and they see what they do and how they help people over and over and over again. 
I had one um, patient care advocate that patient came in and, and she said to him, you know, why are you here? You know, you're not buying anything. You were here two days ago. And he said, you know, Evie, I just wanted to say happy birthday. I know it's your birthday today. So I just came in to thank you for all the help you gave me and happy birthday. And then I left. <laughs> so, you know, we, we that's what we want to do for our, our patients. Um, it's a really gratifying thing to see what we can do for people. And we help a lot of people where nothing else has helped. It's pretty darn amazing. So you've seen as a and talk about how you help people. Yes. Oh, um, I'm Janice Bissett. I'm a holistic cannabis practitioner. Uh, and yeah, I mean it's amazing what what this plant will do to people. And I'm I'm speaking today at four, uh, but just just the the people that I've worked with and the life changing benefits that you know I'm sure many of you have, have heard of. But it's, it's incredible. There's, there's lots of people doing great work out here and um, helping people where nothing else has worked. So, um, for instance, there's a drug called Sativex, helps people with multiple sclerosis, legally available in Canada and Europe, not available here. So we have to create a Sativex for our multiple sclerosis patients. We get people out of wheelchairs, and, you know, so we help people that nothing else has helped, and, and it's been great for a lot of cancer patients. Amazing. Yeah. I have a question regarding uh, the usage in Canada compared to the usage here. They've treated, uh, for years, they've always treated cancer patients. And uh, I know they had trouble doing studies up here. Because for me, I've never been able to identify them. But I the link between the two because they have years of experience already. Right, there is a researcher at, I think it's he's at McGill, um, who's doing research on, um, on the different aspects of, um, of how medical marijuana benefits patients. I think his last name is Hare, or no, Ware, W-A-R-E, um, and he's doing some good work. It's a lot easier to do research in Canada than it is to do research in the United States. It's federally legal now. Um, their system for patients could be a little better. Patients have had to get it in the mail. Um, they would advise people by phone um, and try to answer their questions. But until recently, they haven't had many legal places where people could actually go and get their questions answered in person. Um, they'd have to call on the phone, and, and they were only getting their products through the mail, which is so different from, from the United States. Now they have full legality throughout Canada, um, and they're going to have more storefronts, and, and I'm hoping that at the storefronts, um, the people who, who are waiting on their customers and patients will be educated. I can't say whether they will be or not. Um, so we are going to do adult use, and, and I don't apologize for that. I think that's absolutely fine. Um, we'll have um, people who just help patients, right? We don't want anyone who's sick or suffering to have to wait in line. There'll be lines probably for adult use. So that will be separate. Um, but um, all of the people who work for us are gonna be thoroughly trained in, in helping patients, even if they're in the counter that's for adult use only. Because like I said, there are people who just don't want to tell the government 
that they're using marijuana, and I don't blame them. You know, things get hacked, right? And if, so, for instance, I talked to someone who works for Homeland Security. His daughter uses it for epilepsy. He said that if he told his employer, you know, this is life-saving for her, but if he told his employer that his daughter was using it for a life-saving reason, he'd be fired. So there's lots of people out there that, you know, they have to protect their jobs, and they're going to they're gonna come into us, they're patients, they're going to pay cash. We're not going to keep any record of any of the adult use transactions. And I think that's perfectly fine, right? When everybody who has questions is going to have their questions answered. So, um, so my mother is 87, and she had brain surgery about six months ago. She suffers from, um, she's definitely uh, having trouble with her appetite and um, a little bit of nausea. And I, it's, it's not cancer, but um, in that situation, in, in your experience, what are the best vehicles to have her take something? Is it a, have you seen oils or um, edibles? What do you? So typically elderly people, first, the first thing that they have to do is they have to get over the stigma of they're using weed, right? Because that generation was taught that there's no medical benefits. This is a horrible substance that can lead to people using heroin. And, and they have a lot of stigma that they, first of all, they have to wrap their head around the fact that this can actually be a good medicine. So that's the first step. And that's difficult for a lot of elderly people. Um, so what we would do is if an elderly person came to us, we would find out why they're there, what suffering they want to have alleviated, and then you'd really, really be careful about the dosing for elderly people. Because if they have a bad experience, they're not going back. That just validates everything they've ever heard about how horrible this substance is, right? Oh, so we'll have them start with a very low dose, um, and it depends on do they live in a nursing home, right? Because if they do, they're probably not going to be able to smoke flour. Um, most places ban smoking. If they're ill, they're going to be busted, right? Because the people around them are going to smell it, and, and that's not going to be something that they can do. So maybe um, you'd start out with a vape pen, but they'd have to start out with maybe one inhalation, a, a, you know, a little inhalation, wait a few minutes, and see how, how if, it's, if it's alleviated their symptoms. Um, typically, elderly people um, have trouble sleeping, so then you'd want something that's adjusted um, so that it lasts throughout the night. We've had lots of people come to us and say, I got the first good night's sleep that I've had in years with your products. And that's because it can last throughout the night, right? If it's an ingested form, an edible form. Um, my two major things that, that I would um, hope would happen with elderly people is first, they have to start getting comfortable with them. And my 94-year-old mother-in-law lives in an assisted care facility. And the way that the people there got comfortable with it is one person had to say, I use this and it helps me, right? It's like, what? You know, <laughs> you use that, that stuff. And, and then someone else will be willing to try it. And then pretty soon everyone who can be helped by it, right? So, so first they have to get comfortable that this can help them. Then they have to be very careful not to overdose um, when they start using it. So a very small dose, maybe two and a half milligrams for someone who's never used it before and is elderly. 
Uh, elderly people typically need smaller doses of everything than someone who's middle-aged. Um, their systems are more fragile, and they're more, you know, the effects are stronger um, than it might be for someone who's middle-aged. We'll work with that person and, and find out what their symptoms are, what they want help with, what will most likely help them. Everybody's different, and so that's why we have staff that are trained to listen to what, why the person's there and what would most likely help them. And then we encourage them to come back if it's, if it's not working for them. But the more we all talk about how this has helped either us or other people, that's going to have the stigma go away, and more people who could benefit from, the, benefit from this are going to be willing to try it. We have time for a couple more questions. Anyone else? Uh, this gentleman who spoke at Harvard, who used the Rick Simpson oil that cures, uh, was it prostate? Did he say what kind of dosage he used? So it was actually the, a, a physician presenting the uh, medical history of this patient. It wasn't the patient himself, um, and they did not say the dose. My suspicion is that that person probably ramped up pretty quickly to a very significant dose. But again, better to take a small dose that you can handle than something that you feel so anxious and paranoid and hallucinating that it's like, you know, you just can't, can't do it. So just ramp, I would say, patients have said that just ramp up your dose as quickly as you, as you can tolerate. Oh, and one other question. Would he have taken this like at night before he went to bed or all day long or, or what? I, I think it was it was not just at bedtime. You could probably take a bigger dose at bedtime because if you're sleeping, you're not going to suffer, be you know, suffering the anxiety, paranoia, and hallucinations that you might suffer if you if you have too much. Something one thing that you can do if you need a high dose of THC is if you balance it with CBD. Exactly. That tamps down. Yeah. On Sorry, the I didn't mention that. On yes. Exactly. So if you need a big dose of the CBD. Right. The CBD, great point, will help attenuate all of these side effects that you don't want. So that, it won't hurt you, and it might help you take a, a, a bigger dose. Good point. I have another question about clinical nutrition and the use of cannabis and fasting. Do you recommend all three, or it depends on the individual, because fasting and autophagy has been in the literature, and it's right. significant. So I wasn't sure if that's been also studied or is this a completely different problem than So for, for nutrition, I'm not an expert on nutrition, and I, I would hope that um, if someone suffered from cancer or any other uh, serious medical problems, they go to a nutritionist who is cannabis aware, right, and cannabis knowledgeable. A lot are not. Um, so you can interview a nutritionist and um, hopefully find one that is knowledgeable and, and can help you with this. Like, yeah. any, anybody else? One, one more question. That's all we have time for. One more. Hi, thank you so much for this. this is My pleasure. I, I love doing this because I, I feel like yeah. this, is, this can help people. Oh, this is I went into medicine. <laughs> My question for you is, um, about the oils itself and where we're getting them from. Now in Canada, it's been, you know, we've been importing, you go to Vermont and they say, well, we get our oils from Canada. And 
We're not really allowed to grow and produce the oil in this country, except for Colorado, California, Kentucky. Um, where are you in your dispensaries getting your products? Good question. So um, we grow all of our own marijuana and we process all of it. Our lab cost over a million dollars for the lab equipment. Um, we have a PhD that runs it, a Masters of Science in Plant Extraction Technology, who's second in command, and then four other scientists. Um, there's a, a number of ways that you can extract from the plant. Um, I don't recommend butane. It's less expensive to do it that way, but it can actually um, leave carcinogens in, in the uh, oil. Um, if you test parts per mil million, you probably won't pick them up, but if you test parts per billion, you will. And um, I just morally can't sell a, a, um, a medicine to, to patients that could have carcinogens in it. So the way we do it is um, we use ethanol and CO2. And I don't like the fact that we use ethanol. It's extremely minute amounts, but of course if someone's a, a recovering alcoholic, you know, we worry that they might um, go back to um, using alcohol. That person, we'd probably recommend that they use flour or something that doesn't even contain the very, very, very small amounts of, of ethanol. But if you're not predisposed to alcohol um, addiction, for everyone else, um, our oils are, are um, not, they don't have any, um, any bad substances in them. Um, for instance, uh, some companies, some big companies, famous companies that make vape pens have polyethylene glycol in their vape pen. And they use that because the oil is typically too viscous to be inhaled on its own. Um, so they, they, they um, use that to decrease the viscosity and allow people to be able to inhale with their vape pens. We don't do that, we use terpenes. So we um, take, we extract the, the cannabinoids from the plant and then we put the terpenes back into the vape pens. And, um, and that's how we um, make it so that you can use a vape pen and you can actually pull in and inhale with them. Again, I'm a doctor, I'm a scientist, I know a lot of pharmacology and, and I wanted to do this right. It was hellishly expensive, um, but I didn't really see any other way that, that we, I would feel comfortable or proud of what we produce if we didn't do it the right way. So we do do it the right way. And we produce all of our products from seed to sale. Is there any future uh, when this becomes more accepted and the demand increases that you would be purchasing from other growers that would grow your standard? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And we do, we have purchased some wholesale cannabis that we then put through our extraction. Um, so with that, um, you can be certain that there's only the cannabinoids left and the terpenes left. Everything else, if there's anything bad in it, is taken out in the, in the extraction process. I want to thank Dr. Karen and Casey, um, Garden Remedies, for an incredibly informative. Um, thank, thank you, you all for attending. Uh, at 